Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Premier, what's your government's view of the federal government's actions concerning the COVID-19 pandemic? Are you satisfied, Premier, or do you have advice or expectations of Mr. Trudeau's government based on evolving knowledge about the spread of the coronavirus? Well, Roy, I, I think they're they're working extremely hard. I'm in constant contact uh, uh, with uh, the deputy uh, prime minister, along with the prime minister as well, and uh, I think they're they're doing their absolute best. We're working uh, very collaboratively uh, with them, and and I appreciate the announcement the prime minister uh, did yesterday uh, about making sure they have a subsidy of seventy. Uh, 70% of wages, that helps small business owners because there's so many businesses out there that are absolutely hurting, barely keeping their doors open and, you know, hanging on by their, their fingernails there. And, and we're, we're very grateful uh, for the work that uh, they're doing and, and how uh, uh, collaborative they've been with all provinces and, and uh, the communication. Uh, they're, they're calling every day. And so I... I uh, I truly believe everyone's uh, working uh, very well together and working as hard as they can. Premier Ford, you use the emergency alert system in Ontario, the same system which is used as an amber alert for children who go missing. And you did that to inform anyone returning to the province, even from another province in Canada, that they must self-isolate for 14 days. And very clearly, this was not a request. Speak to that, please. Well, we, we thought it'd be the best way to get the message out. We were concerned. We kept hearing stories from uh, people that knew people that were arriving and they were stopping to get groceries and and uh, you know they they just I guess they weren't hearing the news if they were away uh, in Florida or from abroad. There was a million people uh, coming back to Canada from abroad and hundreds of thousands were coming back to uh, Ontario, and we just want to make sure we we're very clear. Uh, if they go and get groceries, if they go see their grandchildren or, or vice versa, the grandchildren go see their grandparents, they're, they're putting their own family members in jeopardy. They're putting uh, the, the public in jeopardy. And uh, we, ju- we just have to make sure people understand how serious this is, that uh, they're, they're going to have to communicate with their loved ones over the phone. Uh, and that, that's, that's what we need to do. They need to self-isolate for 14 days. And I, I, I truly believe vast majority of the people, uh, Roy, and I, you just have to look downtown Toronto. It's like a ghost town uh, here, and, and at least people are listening, and we're, we're very grateful for that. The Italian Doctors Association revealed that 51 doctors who contracted COVID-19 have now died. Premier, your government has said there is no rationing of personal protective equipment taking place in hospitals. That was immediately challenged on Twitter and elsewhere by medical professionals. What is the situation? Well, I'll tell you, I'm all over uh, the procurement department. Uh, as I say, I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm on I'm like a 300-pound gorilla. There's one thing I understand for, from 30 years of doing procurement and supply chain in our private company here in the U.S. I understand procurement, and uh, what we're trying to do is, is get as many N95 masks. We have 5 million of them on order. Uh, 3M has Three plants in the world, one in the U.K. that are taking care of the European Union, one in uh, South Dakota that are taking care of, for the most part, the U.S., and, and then Singapore. And we thought, okay, rather than start relying on the rest of the world when everyone's in a crisis, uh, we're the manufacturing engine of, of Canada and uh, the ingenuity of uh, companies. We can pull them together. And I, I have to, uh, you know, really give the shout-out to uh, companies Three, or no, sorry, four of the largest part auto part manufacturing companies in the world is uh, Martin Rea, uh, Woodbridge, Linamar, and uh, Magna. So they brought their uh, engineering might and manufacturing together. Uh, they've broken into two groups. One group is going to be uh, putting an assembly line together for ventilators because uh, there's no ventilators being produced outside of in the, in the U.S. and everyone's holding on to them. So we're gonna we place an order for 10,000 ventilators, and we're gonna support the rest of the country. The premiers have asked us, the other premiers have asked us to take the lead on it. That's exactly what we're we're doing, 
And uh, then they're also going to start building the N95 masks right here in Ontario for the whole country, which is uh, a big relief. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uh, the, the belt and suspenders type of guy. I always want to make sure in crisis that we're covering our, our backside. I'm heading off to our distribution center. I mean, I've, I've done audits my, you know, my whole life outside of politics. And I really, I do trust, uh, I do sincerely trust our, uh, our public service. But I just want to verify. It's like the old Ronald Reagan uh, theory, trust but verify. I'm going in there tomorrow. I'm going to do an audit to make sure what uh, we say we have on paper, because, uh, and I, I appreciate what they're doing. Ontario is a big machine. And I just want to make sure that uh, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. So I'll, I'll see firsthand exactly uh, what we have. And uh, we're going we're gonna to work, uh, work hard in making sure we get all the supplies. I, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I heard in, in Etobicoke, uh, in our manufacturing area up in Rexdale, uh, that there was a, a company uh, producing hand sanitizer. They switched their, their line over. And I showed up there cold turkey, and I go back in this factory, there's cars there, so I walk in there, and there was two sons and a father sitting on a line, uh, switched their line over, pumping out the hand sanitizer. I don't know who was happier, them to see me walk through, thinking, what's the premier doing walking through, or me seeing them put the sanitizer in that bottle. <laughs> and uh, I was just, I was so proud of them. And so the companies like that are, are the ones that are stepping up and switching over their lines you have endless stories about distillers doing the same thing, switching over from be it the vodka or any other drink uh, into hand sanitizer. That's how we're going to uh, beat this COVID-19, right. by everyone getting involved. And I'm just so proud of the people of Canada. They're doing an incredible, incredible job. Premier, what are Ontario's greatest needs right now? Your pandemic relief package announced at $17 billion. You said the other morning that every line item is up for review. Have yep. you identified additional issues, um, matters, developments that need to be addressed and very quickly? Yeah, well, what we're doing, Roy, we're working hand-in-hand with the federal government to make sure we aren't duplicating uh, any area, and, and we're looking at uh, increasing $3.3 billion in support for, for health care, another $3.7 uh, billion in support for people and, and jobs. And then on top of that, we have the $10 billion uh, deferral program on, on items. But if there's a need, uh, we will not hesitate, and not hesitate for a second, to make sure we put money uh, where it's needed. And we're hearing uh, certain needs. So I'll give you an example that's something very close to you, Roy, and very close to me. And uh, I always say I listen to the health professionals uh, by no means am I a doctor. We have some of the best uh, uh, people in health anywhere in the world, right here in Canada, right here in Ontario. And it really hit home uh, about, uh, you know, a lot of hospitals are are not doing the, the sur- uh, surgeries for cancer patients. And I, I know I know your, your beautiful wife, uh, she went through the battle, my brother, my mother, my dad, and, and uh, you know, millions of others, uh, went through the pain of one of their loved ones. So I did call up uh, Ontario Health and, and spoke to the CEO, spoke to uh, the CEO of uh, OHN, Ontario Health Network, that does Princess Margaret and a few other hospitals. And I said, by no means am I telling you uh, what to do because I am not a health professional. But if there's any way of coming up with a happy balance and making sure we take care of the most critical uh, patients, uh, then uh, we we need to do it, and so we're we're moving forward. I'm going to get a briefing today on it, uh, but it's it's uh, it's so important that we try to help help everyone. And I fully understand they're they're just maxed out right now, and they're they're trying to do so many different things, uh, be it uh, helping cancer patients or COVID-19 patients. But I, I think there has to be a, a little bit of a, a balance and. Uh, Again, I want to thank our doctors, our frontline healthcare workers. They're the true heroes in this. And uh, I just wanted to give you an update on, on that because I, I know it's uh, close to both our hearts. Yes, it is. Premier, thank you for that. Um, Ontario isn't delivering monies directly to residents of the province, as other provinces are doing, like Alberta. 
and Saskatchewan. And then there's the issue of rent payment concerns for millions of people coming up in just a couple of days, uh, April the 1st. What are you going to do directly for people in financial crisis? And uh, remind us, please, what the regulations and the rules or the expectations of the province are as far as rent is concerned. Well, can I just jump back and then I'll address the rent. So we're putting... uh, uh, direct deposits of $200 for every family per child under 12 years old, $250 uh, for families per child with special needs. We're also uh, doubling the monthly gains payments for 194,000 low-income seniors, um, which is which is really helpful. $166 for individuals, uh, 332 for for couples. We're also uh, making sure, and I. I don't know if the the rest of the province uh, faces the electricity costs that people in Ontario do, uh, but we're taking uh, all all individuals and, and uh, companies off peak peak pricing, so they're they're going to get the lowest cost for electricity, 24/7 for 45 days. That's costing about 165 million dollars we're cutting taxes by 355 million dollars for 57,000 uh employers uh, until they can keep the people uh that uh, are are essential services uh keep them keep them working premier i know we have limited time i really haven't kept track of the time of our conversation here but i have to ask you this question we're looking at this stressed and you've talked about how heroic the frontline healthcare workers are and they certainly are uh, they're under a tremendous amount of stress. We have the Italian example of 51 doctors who contracted COVID-19 now having died. The question is also about immigrant and refugee doctors who have certification from other countries, the countries in which they originated. So the question now is, should we, can we, will we certify these doctors to participate on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic battle? Well, I, I think uh, everyone, it's, uh, everything's on the table right now, Roy and that conversation has come up, and it's a, just a little more complicated. Uh, but I said they must be able to do something. They must be able to help us. They must be able to be in the hospital labs. Uh, critical surgery, um, you know, I'm, I'm, as much as they might have done it in, in another country, we'd have to go through our, our health care uh, team and make sure we get uh, the proper uh, certifications that they, they need. But... Uh, yes, I, I say we, we need them. I say we need them in, in some sort of area uh, within the healthcare system. They'll bring a lot to the table. And I've heard over and over again these stories that, uh, you know, they, they, they were a doctor in one country, but they're, they're driving, let's say, driving a taxi. And God, God bless the taxi drivers. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're great folks. But uh, they, uh, these doctors, if, if possible, we should get them in the system and get them going and and I think, uh, unfortunately, it takes some crisis to, to wake everyone up in, in certain areas. But we're going we're gonna to explore that for sure because I, I know there's, there's room uh, for them to, to help uh, the people of Canada out one way or another. Premier, is there anything you want to add to our conversation today uh, without my asking your question, something that's on your mind that you want to share with the people of Ontario and the people of Canada? Well, I just want to thank uh, everyone in our, in our great country. We live in the greatest country in the world. And, uh, Roy, I want to thank you for your leadership. I listen to you all the time. You're out there getting the message out. And without people like uh, yourself in the media, we wouldn't be able to get our message out. So we're so grateful. And, and the great uh, private sector folks and everyone pitching in, I just say God bless Canada. and We have the greatest country in the entire world. We will get through this. We'll get through it together. And I'm just so proud of everyone from coast to coast to coast. Premier Ford, thank you for the time today. All the best going forward and stay well. Thank you so much. You as well, Roy. You take care. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is with me, infectious diseases specialist, uh, doctor at the Toronto General Hospital and a professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogosh is going to be taking some phone calls shortly. So if you have a question, really, we want to focus on this issue of physical separation. If you have a question for Dr. Bogosh, call now, 1-800-263-2428. We'll screen you, put you on hold, and you will hear everything that's going on, and then we'll do our very best to make sure that your question gets on the air. 1-800-263-2428 is the number to call. Dr. Isaac Bogosh joins us 
on the program on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Bogosh, thank you for coming back. Um, you tweeted earlier today some encouraging news in the face of the pandemic. Can you share that with us? Well, I just felt that, uh, you know, I think Canada in general is doing a, a pretty good job. And I think we're going to fare better than most other places in the world because of our robust clinical and public health system. And uh, I, I know there's lots of strong opinions on that matter in the country. But when we take a step back and we look at how we are doing relative to others, I think we're, go- we're doing well so far. And I'm optimistic that we'll continue to do well. And there may be early, early signs, too soon to get cautiously optimistic, but early signs that maybe that, that uh, curve is getting flattened in B.C. They may be seeing early signs of a slowing number of the uh, new cases. And if so, I mean, that's a welcome, a welcome sign. Uh, but that, of course, doesn't mean that we should take our foot off the gas pedal. We have to go full steam ahead. And, of course, we know what happens in B.C. is not necessarily reflective of what's happening elsewhere in the country. We've seen uh, lots of cases in Quebec, for example. So we still need to be vigilant and, and maintain this physical distancing from each other and still listen to our senior public health leadership here. If there is, and this is, of course, what we're all praying for, if there is a flattening of the curve or an improving of the situation, everybody's looking for any, I think, any tiny morsel of positive news. If that is, in fact, possible, if it may, indicators may be pointing in that direction cautiously, what might be causing that? Well, it would really, truly be that people are adhering to the recommendation. It would be that people are spreading out that they're not gathering in large groups uh, and that they're really heeding the warnings of uh, and, the, and the recommendations of senior health leadership in the country. It's not that hard, to be honest, it's not that hard to prevent getting this infection. If, if, we, if we separate ourselves and if we try not to come into contact with people in our regular settings, if we're mindful about hand hygiene, we really truly reduce our own individual risk of getting this infection. And of course, we reduce risk of transmitting this in, in the community settings. And when you sort of cut and paste this on mass and apply this broadly, yeah, we, we can really make a difference. And, uh, you know, it, it maybe those are early signs in BC. We'll know more uh, as the week unfolds. Uh, but if that's, if that's real, I mean, that, that, that would be, of course, a welcome sign. And of course, we, we, we want to see the same across the country. I mean, it, 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 it'd be wonderful for BC, but I mean, we definitely want to see it uh, from coast to coast as well. When you see the numbers internationally, like the numbers that have come out of Italy, tremendously concerning numbers, um, 51 doctors there contracted uh, coronavirus. Those who did, 51 of them have died from that particular virus. Spain reporting 832 deaths today. More than 9,000 healthcare workers in Spain have contracted the COVID-19 virus. In the United Kingdom, the numbers are spiraling upward with the Prime Minister and their Health Minister both having tested positively or positive. What do those numbers say to you? Are we are we looking really at, at, at uh, regional areas internationally where different things are happening with the with the virus yeah yeah absolutely and we know that you know there's going to be certain hot spots for this of course no place is going to be spared uh but certainly some places are going to have a higher impact than others and a lot of this has to do with the control measures that are uh employed in those areas and not only that but when those control measures were started and we know that the sooner you start the better off you're going to be and if you start these you know, distancing measures and screening measures and isolation measures too late in the game, you can still have a positive impact. But the problem is your positive impact isn't going to be as great. And you can see, for example, Italy is a great example of that, where, you know, they likely had this virus circulating in northern Italy for weeks before it was really recognized. And then, you know, they still did a good job in terms of trying to uh, lock down the country and, and separate people and get it under control. But, you know, a lot of the damage was done before they even started to get this under control. And, of course, we have to remember there's always a two-week lag time between when we start implementing a policy like distancing and and screening and, 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 and seeing the results of that policy. That's because of the incubation period of this virus. So all the numbers we're seeing now are reflective of what happened 7 to 14 days ago. Anything we do today is going to be reflected 7 to 14 days from now. So I think we have to keep that in mind when we're looking at our numbers. We also have to look at the numbers in the United States, which are extremely disturbing. 
Yeah, I mean, they're getting pummeled. It's absolutely horrendous to watch. And I think, sadly, a lot of this is reflective of how fractionated their healthcare system is, uh, that uh, in addition to them really just, I mean, stuttering from the, from the start. Uh, they took forever to get diagnostic testing and surveillance running, and they had just tremendous hurdles to get something. I'm not saying it's so simple, but every other country was able to figure out how to get diagnostic testing. And, and they just, they had so many hurdles to get this done and it really set them back. And now you see places like New York City, uh, New Orleans, just, just with, you know, really, really, it's hard to watch. And of course we see, uh, you know, the human toll of this. And, and as you pointed out, we see healthcare providers as well, uh, getting ill and, and the rationing of personal protective equipment for the healthcare providers. I mean, it's, it's really hard to watch. Obviously, you know, here, here in Canada, you know, we, we, we do everything we can to avoid that situation. And we heard more locally, you know, I mean, politics aside, you hear a very concerned premier who's really trying to, to do his best to, to ensure that uh, there is support uh, to healthcare providers and to the hospitals so that we have everything we need to, to successfully fight this. We hear the word hydrochloroxyquine a great deal, the anti-malarial drug. And I understand there's a study underway currently involving three Canadian universities, the University of Manitoba, the University of Alberta, and uh, McGill University in Quebec. What, uh, I mean, what kind of, what level of hope is there that hydrochloroxyquine will or could make a significant difference? Yeah, so uh, I'll take a quick step back. There's, there's actually several drugs that are touted as being potentially beneficial in treating this infection. And the drug you mentioned is one of them, but there's also several other drugs as well. And uh, it's wonderful that those three uh, institutions you mentioned have started uh, recruiting patients, but really there is a pan-Canadian approach to this. And I think most academic hospitals, if not probably almost all academic hospitals in the country, are on board and will be recruiting patients for these trials uh, in the coming days like really this upcoming week i mean it just takes a bit of time to go through the research ethics board and get all the all the uh logistics set up but i think most academic hospitals and many non-academic hospitals in the country are going to be actively recruiting patients and it's really interesting so number one there's treatment studies so can we use a medication like the one you mentioned or related drugs or even other drugs that aren't related but there's several drugs and and are these drugs going to be effective in you know reducing the burden of illness in an individual so that's one of the questions being asked But I think a a forgotten area that's being asked that's equally important is uh, drug prevention studies. So, for example, if you were exposed to this virus, can we give you a drug and this might prevent you from actually getting the infection as well? And you think about how important that would be. We've heard about this virus sweeping through uh, nursing homes and long-term care facilities. And really, the mortality rate in those areas is astronomically high. It's, It's horrendous to watch. Because these are the most vulnerable people. So you imagine if there was evidence of a virus in, in one of these long-term care facilities, you imagine if you could just put everyone else on a medication to prevent them from getting this infection. So it's not just drug treatment. There's drug prevention trials. And we're going to be actively enrolling people in all these studies uh, really across the country. Um, well, we're started, it started in several places, and it will be uh, many other places will come online uh, this upcoming week. So that's very exciting. Uh, and, you know, it's amazing. I mean, it takes obviously it takes time, but sadly, there doesn't seem to be any shortage of patients. And these, these will be recruit. These will be recruiting throughout uh, the, for the next few months. I really hope to see preliminary preliminary data in the coming. I don't know, six weeks to two months it would be nice to hear how, how these are preparing so far. Dr. Isaac Bulgosh, infectious diseases physician, also professor at the University of Toronto and uh physician at uh, Toronto General Hospital. The issue of COVID-19, and as of 6 p.m. yesterday, Eastern Time, total number of cases in Canada, 4,757, including 55 deaths. More than 170,600 Canadians have been tested in the U.K. The numbers are spiraling. We'll next hour be speaking with Global News European or Europe correspondent, Redmond Shannon about what's going on in the UK and across the continent. Let's take some phone calls for Dr. Bogosh on the coronavirus, on COVID-19, and specifically we're going to try to get into this issue of physical separation. Let's go with uh, Laser in Toronto. Hi, Laser. Go ahead, please. Uh, hello. I'd like to ask Dr. Um, whether it's enough what has been so far done 
Because uh, what I was suggesting to call screener, I said that if we had uh, computer systems which were infected with viruses, they of course I recommend cleaning them, and uh, but not leaving uh, like uh, cleaned uh, systems with all software uh, back into the circulation. So okay, what's the question then, later? What's the question? My question is uh, whether there was enough done uh, like um, uh, to educate people how to be more immune, uh, uh, like uh, in a better, okay. immune, uh, I guess, uh, uh, capability to resist not just this virus or uh, prevent. Right. Uh, okay, thank you for the call. And we get the question. We understand the question. Dr. Bogosh, has yeah, enough I been done I, to I provide some level is. of security? Yeah, I think I thought the gist was, you know, did they do enough to really inform people on how to protect themselves from the virus? And and, you know, quite frankly, I think I think we have. I mean, we've heard time and time again from senior health leadership at the federal level, at the provincial level, at municipal levels on what we need to do. Uh, you know, they, we've heard about spreading out. We've heard about hand hygiene. We've heard schools closed, events canceled. So, I, I mean, there's no excuse not to know what the message is to prevent from getting this infection. So I think I, I, I'm, I'm actually okay with the messaging that we've had. I think it's been pretty firm and, and pretty standardized across the board. All right. Paul is in uh, Coldwater, Ontario. Go ahead, Paul. Yes, hi. Um, I have a question. It's not, uh, not regarding social distancing, per se. It's more... Uh, I'm more interested in the upcoming uh, mosquito season, black flight season. Is it transmittable by, uh, by insects? That's a great question. I've heard this one a few times. And, you know, obviously we've only known this virus has existed for four months, so it's hard to make any conclusive statements about it. But I, we do know it's a respiratory virus, and we know that there's no other respiratory viruses that are transmitted through mosquitoes or other flies. We've got influenza as the obvious one, but there's a million others that circulate in the summertime as well. And the list of these is longer than my arm. None of them are transmitted through uh, mosquitoes or flies, so I don't think that we're going to see this one transmitted so through it's, mosquitoes it's or flies as well. not transmitted through blood or, or anything like no. that? Or? No, I really don't think we're going to see that, just like we don't see it with the other respiratory viruses. Great question. But uh, and I think we could be hopeful that uh, that that's just not going to be a route for transmission. Dr. Bogash, can we bring personal pets back into the picture? Because people are asking, can I give it to my dog or my cat? Can my dog or my cat give it to me? Yeah, great question, too. I mean, I think the uh, there was sort of one high profile case of maybe a dog had this. Maybe it was un unclear. We haven't really heard much about uh, about that since then. But I think the key thing here is that. You know, we're told not to shake hands and to physically distance ourselves from other people. But, of course, we touch our cats and our dogs all the time, as we should. We should pet our, our pets and, and, and really show them love and affection. But, um, but I think we just have to be weary that we don't want other people to be touching our pets as well. It's the same thing as shaking someone's hand. So, I mean, obviously, we're used to walking our dogs and having everyone give them a, a pet in public. But this is not the time for that because we know that the infection can stick to surfaces, including uh, the fur of a cat or a dog. And, uh, you know, in, instead of having other people pet your cat or your dog, maybe we just show our pets some, a little more love from us uh, because I don't think it's appropriate for other people to be, to be petting them and laying hands on them. It's, just, it's a potential mode of transmission. Yeah, my Yorkie used to make sure that nobody else petted him. I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get uh, William and Calgary on. William, we have to get your question quickly. Go ahead, please. Um, how long does it stay on uh, rubber surfaces like rubber gloves, for instance? Uh, I've been getting mixed signals uh obviously via the internet i don't believe everything i read but uh, does it stay on uh, rubber surfaces longer and should i be disinfecting the surface of the glove before i take it off my hands a great question uh you know we there's some decent data that it can stay on surfaces for about two hours to two days depending on the surface it likes plastic and metal a little bit longer rather than paper products so it can certainly live on rubber surfaces as well if you're using disposable gloves, though, there is a way that you can take gloves off and then uh, dispose of them and wash your hands uh, afterwards. I think that's a smart approach. Uh, but, yeah, it certainly can live on those gloves for two hours to two days. Dr. Bogosh, we have about 45 seconds. What are we facing? What's Canada going to look like in three weeks as far as the COVID-19 pandemic is concerned? Great question. A great, and you know what, Roy, it's, it's totally up to us, right? If we physically distance ourselves, if we listen to our public health authorities, if we really do what, what we know we're, we're supposed to do, you know, we're still going to see hospitalization. Sadly, we're still going to see deaths, but we're going to see far less of that if we heed this advice, whereas if we ignore it and, and, and uh, let our guard down, 
we're going to see a lot more people infected, a lot more hospitalizations, and sadly, a lot more people succumbing to this. We can do this. We're doing a decent job so far. It's, uh, we just have to remember this is a marathon, not a sprint, and we just have to be patient. And we'll, if we truly do what we're supposed to be doing, uh, we'll get through this far better than other places. Thank you for everything you do for us. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me back on. Great talking to you again. The people in healthcare, on the front lines of healthcare in this country, are our national heroes. And I'm particularly impressed with the story that I heard, and we're going to be speaking to right now with a young woman who very much involved at the center of it. McMaster University nursing graduates were very eager, are very eager to become certified nurses so they can get onto those front lines of healthcare in hospitals fighting the COVID-19 virus. They went so far as to launch a change.org petition. And from what I understand, there is now some movement in getting these young graduate nurses into the hospitals, onto the front lines to fight the coronavirus. Laura Freeman started the petition drive, and she joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Laura, thank you so much for what you're prepared to do. I have such admiration for you, and so does the whole country. Thank you. Yeah, um, well, absolutely. I It's my job, first and foremost. So let's talk about this. Uh, how, how difficult is it to go from graduating from the nursing program at McMaster University to actually receiving certification? What's the process normally? Um, so the process normally would be finishing a clinical consolidation of about 350, 360 hours. Um, all of that being reviewed by the university. They make sure you've met academic requirements, professional requirements, um, and that means assessing your character as well. Um, I believe it's a, like a board or a panel, the dean of nurses, et cetera, um, that go over that, and then they submit that eligibility to the college. They review that. They allow you to write your nursing exam and then enter the workforce if you pass. And so here you are facing this COVID-19 crisis. Most of you, I believe, in the nursing class, the graduating class, you have jobs waiting for you at hospitals, right? Um, a fair number of us have temporary job offers, yes. Okay, so, so you have the opportunity to get into this mm-hmm. battle with the coronavirus. And so you launched a petition on uh, change.org looking to get certification early, and there is some progress on that, I understand. Yeah, so the College of Nurses has acknowledged that um, they're working hard on kind of a different pathway for graduating students to get their temporary RN licenses. And that lets them work for six months without having to write their NCLEX, so our uh, registration exam. Um, And they've said they're going to work hard to expedite that. Um, And then we were just asking universities to make sure that they um, did what was right and try and send our information as soon as feasible for them. And is what's being done at McMaster, your uh, your class, is that being copied or, or followed across the country? Are nursing course graduates, uh, program graduates across Canada looking to get into the profession more quickly than they normally would? I know a lot of individuals have reached out to me from different universities in Ontario, and they are um, hoping for the same and asking me about what my application process was like. Um, but I haven't heard anything about nurses specifically, but I did hear about Fanshawe College that has sent their respiratory therapists into the field uh, right away. And that's so wonderful to hear because they are also so crucial at this time with a respiratory illness like this. So I have to ask you, Yeah. are, are you afraid? Yeah, I'm afraid for I'm afraid for everyone. Um, it's it's such an unknown, and I think that's what's so unnerving for us. Um, like we see what hap- is happening in other countries, and we hope it doesn't happen here, but we prepare for the worst. And um, yeah, I think it's it's scary to see what our what we potentially might be faced with. You know, we we have in this country, all of us have so much admiration for everyone who is in the hospital setting, who's in the medical field, who is taking on this virus, who is putting themselves at risk, frankly, by doing what you do about what you care about. 
And, and that's, I imagine, what it boils down to, uh, isn't it, Laura? This is what you care about. This is a vocation for you. This is something that you, that you plan to do for the rest of your life, and that's to get into the medical field and, and, and help. Absolutely, and there was never a question in my mind about whether I would or wouldn't. It's just, um, it was just when I could, right? Do you have a, a nursing specialty at all that, that uh, would, would take you where, where exactly in the system? Um, so I personally decided to pursue continuing education through a critical care certification. So I've been working on that while doing my undergraduate degree. So the goal for me is an ICU, a critical care, or like a step-down setting. Have you had an opportunity to talk to nurses who are actually on the front lines in the hospitals and in the healthcare centers now, maybe doctors, and ask them questions about what they're facing? Yeah, so I'm actually working as a registered practical nurse right now. So I um, am working in two different hospitals, but not at the full scope that I am educated to be. So I see the emergency departments and I see the inpatient wards. Um, so I'm very aware of what is going on and the changes that are happening. Um, it's just a matter of being really wanting, being able to work at my full scope, my full capacity, and share my knowledge and my skills with everybody. What is happening as you look at uh, the wards, as you look at the emergency departments, as you look at the hospitals in in southern Ontario specifically? That's where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is happening? What are you seeing? Constant change. Um, I've been really thrilled with my the, the, my workplaces and their approach to staff safety. That's been really refreshing. Um, but updates are constantly changing. Guidelines are constantly changing. Um, we're trying to set everything up as best we can with what we have. And um, the, the only thing that I've noticed consistently is change. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have such uh, tremendous admiration for you and uh, your fellow nursing school graduates at McMaster and across the country. It takes a special person. It takes somebody who understands and cares so much about your fellow human beings in the most difficult of times to step forward and say, this is my career, and I'm going to get into this career at the most difficult of times. This is, uh, you're remarkable. You're absolutely remarkable. And when we say that we consider our healthcare professionals to be our Canadian heroes, we mean it. Thank you. That means a lot. And, um, the community support has been tremendous and means so much as well. So uh, one more question. How quickly do you think it's going to be uh, possible for you to actually get that certification, even if it's on a six-month basis, so you can get into the hospitals and do what you're trained and, and, and want to do? I mean, my future employers are hoping that I'll be in there by April. Um, that's when they're really starting to work on the upstaffing, the staff availability, having extra resource pools. Um, So that's what I'm so hopeful for. Um, I plan on writing my registration exam as soon as I can find a date, whether it means driving a couple hours away to get that done. Um, I'm I'm just hoping before things get out of hand here. Yeah. And the uh, the petition is still up, right, on change.org? I took it down yesterday. Um, out of uh, respect to McMaster um, and obliging by my um, student code of conduct. So the deans contacted me. They are well aware. Um, They've let me know that they are working. They sent out step one of two in this process to the College of Nurses Ontario yesterday. So I take that as a, a small, small win, a small step. Well, we're going to be lucky all of us, to have you in the healthcare field. You're proactive, you're determined. I think you're going to make a tremendous difference. Thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for doing what you're doing from all of us, from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you so much for reaching out. Take care. A lot said, a lot written about the Canada-U.S. border recently. First, the border closed, and then, of course, President Trump was talking about wanting to have troops on the Canadian border conversation, discussion between the U.S. government and the Canadian government have changed that reality. But there is a town in Canada, in Quebec, the town of Stansted. 2,700 souls live there that is right on the Canada-U.S. border. In fact, you can go to the theater and you can be in Canada and go and sit down and be in the United States. 
My wife and I were driving down the main street of Stansted. We used to love to go there when we lived in Quebec. We were driving down the main street. The first time I was there, I had no idea I was crossing the border until a loudspeaker ordered me to turn around and come back and go through the inspection station, which I hadn't even seen as I was driving through. It was fairly well hidden. Philip Dutille is the mayor of Stansted, Quebec. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mayor Dutille, thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. So share with us, in Stansted, I could walk into a house and be in Canada, walk a little further in the house and be in the United States. That, that's the Haskell Library, and it's an opera house, too. So the, the seating is on the American side. You have to go in through. You, get, you go on the sidewalk, you go through the American door, and you go up the stairs, and the show is on the Canadian side. So how does that work out? If you go to the theater, are you just? do you have to take your passport? No, no, they tolerate it. They, as long as you stay on the sidewalk, you don't get off, and you go inside, you have no problem. It's tolerated either for Canadians or Amer- the Americans on go in the American side, but Canadians are allowed to go in the American side. So you live in a very unique reality uh, in, in Stansted, which is a beautiful, beautiful, small eastern townships, Quebec community. Uh, how, how does this evolve? Uh, I mean, how do, you, how do you live so closely aligned with the American border? Does it even make an impact on, on the residents of Stansted anymore? Well, basically, living on the border like that, it's like it's almost like there are well, there are neighbors, and we don't consider the border because we we uh, we're in so many projects together. Because Stansted furnished the drinking water for the line. Stansted the line has no sewer plant, so we treat their sewers and this and that. Border minor hockey, it's made up Canadians and Americans who can play at the Pat Burns Arena. So there's so many things we share together. So, you know, we're, most of the baby boomers uh, in Stance were all born in Newport because New, Newport Hospital was the closest hospital sure. at the time and were all basically delivered by Canadian doctors. It's amazing. Actually, I, I bought, used to buy my tires in Newport yeah. and come back across the border into Canada, and I did tell them that I bought the tires. I didn't just, you know do what a lot of people did i didn't want them looking at my wheels and causing problems but it is it's it is really a a unique reality now the people in newport and the people in stansted so you're like smack dab right beside each other yeah there's no you don't go through i mean you go through a border crossing unless you know you you can drive through but then i found out they'll haul you back but has that changed as the closing of the border change the relationships that exist between Americans and Canadians who live literally next door to each other. Yeah. No, I don't think it's changed their relation because the only thing is stop stop the Canadian from going to the U.S., stop the American from coming into town because basically uh, you know, a lot of people were going over there uh, either for breakfast, have a coffee, and Americans were coming over here, go to Tim Hortons, get a coffee and stuff like that, but it hasn't uh, just that we find it quieter in town because there's no traffic going through. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of relate. I mean, a lot of people have brothers and sisters in the United States, but, you know, you, you're still phoning this and that, so. And to go, if they want to come from the United States to go to Timmy's, it's a couple of hundred feet. Yeah, it's, that's it. It's up the street, you know, so. <laughs> Has border security changed at all? Well, border security right now is, you see a little bit more presence of Border Patrol and RCMP. Right. But, uh, but you, can't, you, you can't go across the border anymore now. No, you cannot go across the border. Right? Basically, they're just letting trucks, uh, transport trucks go through. And people who work in the States or work in Canada... It's a really fascinating reality, and that's the town of Stansted has been around for hundreds of years, yeah. or the community has been was built in the 1700s. And if you're ever in uh, the eastern townships of Quebec, or if you're in upstate Vermont, by all means go and visit Mayor Dutille's community of Stansted. You won't regret it. Mr. Mayor, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join us. I think it's fascinating that you can go to the Opera House and you can walk in in Canada and be in the United States or the other way around, but you're going to be, in, you're going to be watching a performance 
and you're going to be uh, crossing the international border, entering and leaving the building. Yeah. Thanks okay, so much thank for the time. Thank you very much. Have a great afternoon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye, Mayor Philip Dutille. I just wanted to share that story with you. Just a unique U.S.-Canada, Canada-U.S. reality. And now the border's closed, and the Americans can't walk those couple of hundred feet to come back into Canada. They have to stop. Redmond Shannon is European correspondent for Global News. He joins us from London on the Chorus Radio Network. Redmond, thank you for the time. And you are you physically under lockdown? Is everybody in London under lockdown right now? Yes, uh, Roy. It's a, well, it's a lockdown uh, in most respects that uh, people are allowed out, uh, like many other countries, to get food uh, for medical appointments and uh, for one period of exercise a day. Um, that's pretty much it, uh, apart from uh, if you were involved in essential work, of course, uh, health workers, police, uh, us journalists, too, are on the list. Um, food delivery people, obviously hugely important. So outside of that, you're not supposed to be out and about. Um, but it is difficult to police that um, in the UK because there's no obligation to carry identification with you. So how do police know this is your one and only uh, time of exercise? Although I have seen police in parks here tell people to get up off a park bench if they're sitting down, because if you're sitting down on a park bench, you're not doing exercise. So keep moving or go home is the message from police. But like everywhere else, they have a very difficult job in making sure people uh, stick to the rules. It really is, in large part, a voluntary uh, agreement among governments and the people to do this properly and appropriately, wherever you are in the world. I'm just wondering how much of a shock it was to the system of the United Kingdom when Boris Johnson, the prime minister, tested positive for the coronavirus and then read uh, almost immediately following that the health minister, and it hasn't stopped with those two. Yeah, exactly. We had uh, the the top three, really, in terms of decision makers when it comes to handling this crisis in the UK. The prime minister, the health minister and the chief medical officer all test positive. And now today you have another member of the cabinet, uh, Alistair Jack, the Scottish uh, secretary, um, self-isolating as well with uh, symptoms that may be COVID-19. The two ministers and Boris Johnson all sat beside each other in the House of Commons on Wednesday. So there you go. Um, One wonders if more ministers will turn out to have this virus too. But obviously it brings it home to people that uh, if the prime minister can get it, well, just about anyone can. And obviously we know that in in Canada with the prime minister's wife uh, testing positive, um, this doesn't discriminate. Nonetheless, people are ignoring advice here just as much as they are in Canada and other countries. But it seems to be uh, the message takes time to get home everywhere so people in italy and spain are probably most diligent right now about it because they see the death toll give it a week here i imagine the behavior will improve my apartment building roy last night the concierge told me there were three house parties in this apartment building Mm. that's insane that people would be so reckless but people some people just still have their head in the sand yep And uh, we can see it here as well. We go out and we see largely, we see compliance, but then walk another hundred feet and you're stunned by the ignorance that you can see. Uh, Red, how is the UK medical system handling this crisis? Well, it's about to see the big surge approach. So the National Health Service, the NHS, is uh, something that British people are very proud of, just as Canadians are proud of the uh, public health care in Canada. Um, But nonetheless, it has been under huge strain in recent years. Uh, The number of ventilators is around 8,000. The government estimates it will need about 30,000 to meet the peak demand. So right now, it has placed orders with private companies who normally don't make ventilators, including Dyson, the vacuum uh, manufacturer, uh, Airbus, the aircraft manufacturer, and Formula One racing teams. They're all involved in this process. Part of the reason the UK is dealing directly with these companies is that it missed an email from the European Union, which it is still allied with um, for all intents and purposes for the next year, that was part of a group purchase scheme that the EU was placing for ventilators, Somebody missed that email this week. They had to admit that that happened. So they're going out on their own now. Who knows? It might turn out for the best if British companies can provide these ventilators quickly enough. But obviously, they have to meet regulations too. Um, We won't know 
if they can get these out in time and, and be approved in time. But ventilators is a huge issue everywhere, obviously. Staffing is a huge issue. It will be uh, always under strain here. We see in Italy more than 50 uh, doctors reportedly have uh, died in Italy uh, from the virus, which is staggering. Will something similar happen here? Well, it seems almost inevitable. A large convention centre in London, the Excel Centre, is being converted as we speak to a 4,000-bed hospital, temporary hospital with uh, morgues uh, attached to it too. They are getting ready for what they surely expect will be something just as serious uh, as Spain and Italy. How is the continent handling this? Mention Spain and Italy. If you cross the channel and go into um, mainstream Europe, what's happening there? Yes, well, Spain and Italy is where it is at its peak right now, the two countries dealing with most of it. So Europe um, hit the 20,000 deaths mark today, and 10,000 of those, more than 10,000 of those are from Italy. And that's concentrated in northern Italy, where you have uh, towns sending bodies to other parts of the country in order to bury or cremate them. There's just not enough capacity. The army is involved. Churches are opening their doors, moving the pews to one side to place coffins in rows upon row inside the churches. Uh, As one priest put it in Italy, at least uh, God can look after them in here. No one else is around to look after them because many of these elderly people died alone in isolation for fear of uh, cross-contamination and infection and they can't be seen by their relatives after they died. Uh, Just heartbreaking pictures. Similar scenes in Spain, nursing homes, uh, seniors' homes being, uh, you know, where people being found dead there uh, when it overwhelms the staff, many of the staff becoming sick. Just apocalyptic scenes. And one, perhaps, scene that uh, represented that in the last day was uh, Pope Francis, addressing an empty St. Peter's Square in the Vatican, obviously televised, but the, the, the image of him speaking to an empty St. Peter's Square where normally it would be jam-packed is quite staggering. And he yes. was praying, obviously, for an end to the pandemic to absolutely no one, just a television camera. Red, thank you so much for the time. These are really apocalyptic scenes that you're describing. And anyone who hears what you've just said and still decides they're going to go out for a COVID party tonight, get your heads examined quickly. My brother-in-law, Roger, and his wife, Kate, were in Italy on vacation for a good part of the winter, and I got in touch with Roger and Kate maybe six weeks ago, and I asked them by email how things were going and what they were experiencing and suggested they get back home because of what we were hearing about what was going on in Italy. And so I stayed in touch with with Kate and Roger over the the next weeks, and I read their emails, and I sensed the, and, and could read the growing sense of alarm. I read about the lockdown, about what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. And then I heard from Roger that they were planning on making, um, a trip, a drive, a combination of driving and train or train only. They were going to make it from Italy to Paris, Orly Airport, and fly back to Canada. So I had an opportunity to speak with Roger earlier in the week and ask about what their experience was like. And Roger joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network now. Rog, I'm so glad you're both home. I, You know, it's we have thousands of Canadians who are trying to get back and who knows when they will. You're home. Glad for that. You're self-isolating. Let's back it up to the beginning when uh, when you first became aware in Italy that something was seriously happening as far as the coronavirus was concerned. When was that? Okay, Roy. Um, first of all, can I just say how grateful we are to be home too. Um, having seen what we've seen, um, this is something that we feel a lot more confident about fighting on our home ground. You don't want to play away at a time like this. So we're very grateful to be home and very grateful still to be in, in good health. Um, I'll tell you when we first uh, really got wind of something um, that, was, that was really serious going on. We'd heard murmurs of anxiety to the first 
two weeks of our stay in Italy. But then at the end of the third week, um, it was a very strange moment. Um, late uh, in the afternoon, early evening, Kate and I sensed that there was something there was something odd going on. We and, and we couldn't figure out what it was until we both realized that we were listening to silence. Um, your listeners, many of them will know that um, towns and villages across all across Italy celebrate a, a curious kind of ritual um, around this time of day. It's called a passeggiata. And what happens is that uh, families come out um, and they walk up and down the main street or they walk around the piazza and they exchange greetings. You know, they exchange news, they exchange gossip, um, and they certainly exchange opinions, lots of opinions. And what you can hear is this wonderful sort of bubble of, of conversation and laughter and, and debate. And it, it wasn't there. Um, and we were sort of um, curious about this. And our apartment happened to look over the, the town square. And sure enough, when we were out in the apartment, there was no one on the street. Um, and you have to understand that, you know, for me, the Italians are, are a warm, demonstrative. Um, they're a, a people of the community. They love to engage. And this is one of the rituals um, in which they do this. And, and it kind of, it's, it's a way of bonding. It's a way of affirming their sense of community. And um, it wasn't there. And for me, suddenly I began to realize that this wasn't just about individuals. This was about a way of life that was in some way under attack, you know. And, um, and slowly, uh, more and more signs uh, became evident. Um, suddenly, the cafes were only allowing people to sit one at a table. Um, and I remember Kate and I had uh, uh, made a, a date to meet with a couple of friends at a bar in the local um, in, a, in the local village and have coffee on a Saturday morning. And when we went in, our, our, our friends were sitting uh, one to each table. And um, the owner, uh, Monica, wasn't there, but a, a friend of ours, Fran, said, um, "Oh, listen, guys, you have to sit. Well, uh, you have to sit at a separate table from us." So we said, "Okay." And the two of us sat down together. And Monica came back, and she looked at me, and she said, you can't do that, she said. You have to get up. You have to go and sit at that table. And Kate said, Monica, we've been together for 50 years. And I have to tell you that when we woke up this morning, it was in the same bed. But Monica said, I'm sorry, she said. Um, if the police drive by and they see two people at one table, they're going to close my cafe, she said. So we said, fine. And Again, these were the signs that they were really beginning to take this seriously. And Roger, this was before, and I, I gather there were a series of seismic shocks. This was before the prime minister shut the country down. Yes, this was before that. Uh, the, the way they did it, they closed down. Um, there was a, a, a small town called Cordonia, which is where the first um, real signs of, of a problem um occurred. And first of all, they cordoned off that town. Then they cordoned off a whole series of other towns. And then at the moment that I'm talking about, it was those towns that were cordoned off. And the very next day, they closed down virtually the whole of North Italy. And then literally, um, less than two days later, the Prime Minister Conte announced that the whole country was in, uh, was in lockdown. And that was the moment, I think, when um, it really got their attention. It got everybody's attention. Um, it there certainly were, got our attention. Um, there were and, some... And sorry. you would go to the supermarket uh, the next day, and there were lines on the floor. And they were a meter and a half apart, and there were security people there who, to ensure that people maintained that distance. Um, and this almost happened overnight, Roy. You know, and, and, and it... I, it may have been a deliberate on the part of the government, you know, that they were going to shock the people into realizing just what was going on. Roger, that, you spoke with me. You spoke with me the other evening about something that we we need to speak about. I just spoke with Redmond Shannon, sure. who's the European correspondent for Global News, and he joined us from London. Yeah. 
And he talked about a convention center being converted into a hospital and a morgue being attached to that convention center hospital. You saw, and we need to speak about this, you saw what happened in Italy as far as people dying was concerned, uh, how they died, and what happened as far as funerals were concerned. Share that with us. That was was really um, immediately after the country closed down, there were... Um, YouTube videos of uh, of Italians singing from balconies and 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 people r- responded to that. You know, it was a, it was heartwarming in some ways. In Castiglione, two days later, that mood had just gone so dark, and it had done so largely because the stories were beginning to come out from the frontline workers in the worst hit areas, and in particular, what was hurting people was the fact that the elderly who had lived their lives, especially this generation, they lived their lives surrounded by friends, by family, by neighbors, um, and they were dying alone. They spent their last few days alone, and they died alone. And sometimes they had to seal those rooms with the bodies in them because they couldn't find people to pick them up. Um, And... We were hearing from funeral services, from frontline workers, from health workers, that this was for them, of course, an an added anguish on top of all uh, the other things that they they were dealing with just in a a sort of a logistical way. This was a a psychological and emotional anguish that, that they were dealing with. And, of course, there were no funerals because people weren't allowed to gather um, at all. So there would be perhaps uh, um, two of the immediate family and a priest to offer a few prayers. And then the casket was taken away and it was stored in a, a church or a warehouse uh, along with all the other caskets that were waiting for burial. Like There was one interview with um, a funeral, uh, a, a funeral di- a director of a funeral service. And I've, I've always remember him um, explaining that what he found so hard was that they couldn't prepare the bodies as they would usually prepare the bodies. Um, and for him, it was a matter of pride, you know, that they prepared the body to, um, to, to help the family through this, this grieving period, um, to afford a, a measure of dignity to the person who had died. They couldn't do that. And he said, still, families would show up and they would bring clothes that they wanted uh, their loved ones to be buried in. And he, he wasn't able to do it. He just didn't have the time to do it. And so he decided that what he could do was to lay these clothes out on top of the body and then close the casket and so, then send it away for storage. Roger, and, hold on. Hold on, yeah. please. We're going to take a quick break. Roger's been describing how he and his wife, Kate, my sister-in-law, what they experienced in Italy as the pandemic hit and the country shut down. So, Roger, I wish we had more time to to talk, but I want you to share with us, please, what your journey from a locked-down Italy to Paris consisted of, what you encountered. Okay, Roy. Um, the first thing was that we almost didn't make our first um, our first train. Uh, by now in Italy, if you left the house, you had to have a self-declaration form. It had to tell the police who might stop you who you were, um, where you lived, where you were going and why. And our hope was um, that they would hold to what they had said. The Italian government and the French government had said they would not, um, uh, they would not get in the way of anyone who was trying to get home. And so that's what we hang on to. Um, we almost didn't make it because we ran into the second police block, and unfortunately, um, Kate made the mistake of smiling at one of the policemen who completely lost it, um, a measure, I think, of how stressed he was and how frightened, I think, he was. Um, and he lit into us on the subject of us not taking this journey seriously that didn't we realize that Italy was a dangerous place to be? And um, we just had to um, sit tight, swallow it, 
get on the train, and what followed was a 12-hour journey to Nice because we had to fly out of Nice to get to, um, to Paris. So in other words, we had to cross the French border as well as uh, everything else. The journey required five trains. Um, we, had to, um, uh, we had to hold our breath at every one of the stations because as we were traveling, so they were announcing the cancellation of the trains. We couldn't go up through Lombardy. We couldn't go through Milan. We had to do this series of hops up the Italian coast to Genoa and then over to Ventimiglia on the Italian border. And as I say, every changeover, um, it, it became um, more and more tense because we, we didn't know if the train we wanted was going to be canceled. But also as we moved further north, it became more and more surreal because we literally... Um, at times were the only passengers on the train. And as you gazed out of the Italian countryside, which didn't look like it was bombed out or, or, or at all, it looked absolutely beautiful. Um, it was spring, there were trees blossoming, but there wasn't a soul to be seen. The streets and pavements were completely empty and it became more and more surreal. I remember arriving at Genoa um, it was 7 o'clock on a Saturday evening. We pulled into Platform 20. Platform 19 had a train in it which blocked our view of the rest of the station. As it pulled out, we looked up 19 platforms, not a soul, not a railway worker, not a passenger, not a security guard. And at that point, it was almost like being, I don't know, almost like being in a science fiction movie where you were the only two people left on the planet. Um, the next two trains, we were the only passengers. So we went to Gen we went from Genova to Ventimiglia. We finally found a train from Ventimiglia that got us across the French border. It stopped briefly at the actual border, um, no station. Two soldiers jumped on the train, ran through the train, looked at us, said good evening, and jumped off the train. I have no idea what that was about. Right. And we ended up finally in, in Nice at 11 o'clock at night, just as President Macron announced that France was going into lockdown. Roger, so we, have, we, have to, we, we have to end it here simply because of time. You're both home. You're both safe. You're both sound. You're feeling well. You're going through the self-isolation. You're both well, right? We're both very well, Roy. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And one thing I would just uh, plead with your listeners, please, please, please pay attention to what's happened in Europe. We can learn from it. We must learn from it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.